I think one thing that I enjoy about entrepreneurship is when you get to a certain stage of the business and your product is out there and you can see people interacting with your product. That's the ultimate high. I don't think there's anything in the world that feels better than that. So whether it's Aspira and just going around to different malls and just observing and seeing how clients interact with our sales agents and their experience purchasing the product, or even when I was walking into Wine Life and seeing 200 customers at my place and I might know two people out of those 200. It's just a testament to the quality of the product and the thinking that went behind creating it. Africa X. Create your life. Create your life. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series, and you are listening to our special series, Africa X, which is focused on conversations and experiences with experts from Africa, in Africa, about Africa. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. On this episode, we have another powerful guest, as we normally do on the Create Your Life series. But this person has a unique perspective. He is the CEO and co-founder of Sava, a fintech business helping businesses manage their finances and access affordable credit. He was previously the founder of Aspira, the largest being NPO, which stands for Buy Now, Pay Later, which I had to research, player in East Africa, and before that, the chief strategy officer at the African Leadership University, where he helped the founding team establish universities in Rwanda and Mauritius. Prior to that, he was Bank of America Merle Lynch and spent time in their New York and Hong Kong offices. This gentleman also has an MBA from the Wharton School of Business and a BSc in Industrial Engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Create your Life family, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Yoel Halle. Yoel, please say hello to the Create Your Life family. Hello. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a big fan of the show and I listen to it all the time and big fan of what it represents. And thank you for having me today, Kevin. I really appreciate it. No, most definitely, Yoel. And I want to jump right into it and actually really piggybacking off of some of the conversations that we've had on the side, man. So out the gate, you are a child of Eritrean refugees who came to the U.S. There are many of our Habesha brothers and sisters with a similar experience. But because of your look, your culture and way of life is so unique in comparison to the common American experience, I would say. Can you share with us some of the challenges and struggles that you've encountered in terms of acceptance and how those challenges kind of shaped you and your identity, leading you to the decision not to solely identify as American? I think I'm an interesting spectrum being Eritrean and that being such a strong culture that is passed down from generation to generation and really embracing that first, being Eritrean above, you know, being African, being Black, being American, being human. So as a first generation, African-American in the U.S. I also grew up in a neighborhood where it wasn't that diverse, black population of maybe about 2%. And that led to a series of challenges as those of you who have spent time in the U.S. as African-Americans may have encountered. There's always this debate of what am I? Am I Eritrean? Am I African? Am I African-American? Am I black? And then that was something I really struggled with in my formative years. Now following a very much different path than most diaspora and first-generation immigrants in returning back to where I came from or the continent where I came from. So yeah, I think I'm in a unique position from that perspective and yeah, identify as African, I would say, at the moment. Thank you for sharing that with us, man. And something else that you said was you talked about your first trip back to the continent, your first international trip, actually, in 1991, which is your first trip to Eritrea. Can you talk to us about the energetic atmosphere of the country at the time and the impact that it had on you that even inspired you to want to come back and actually live on the continent? Backstory, you know, in 1961 to 1991, there was a war between Eritrea and Ethiopia. That's what caused a lot of people to migrate and seek asylum in Europe and the U.S. And that's the journey that my parents went on in the late 70s in their teens, going through Saudi Arabia and eventually and then Sudan and eventually making their ways to the U.S. Growing up in the U.S. at that age, being five years old, I knew about Eritrea from what my parents told me. But now jumping on a plane and flying halfway across the world, it was really a new experience for me in multiple regards. And I remember landing at that airport and it being very different than what I was used to having been born and raised in the U.S. And there was 
a sense of energy and vibrations that was through the roof and, you know, something I haven't experienced since then. You can imagine people fighting 30 years for their independence and finally getting it. And I went with my mom and my sister for about two months and we were on the second flight into the country. So a really transformative experience. And looking back at my journey now, being on the continent for nine years, going on 10, I think that was one of the pivotal moments in my life that really inspired me and stuck with me. And ultimately, my intuition told me that this is where I needed to be. Love that. We've had conversations. You said that you identify as African-American, then you said that you identify as African. Even within this combo, African-American is something that's traditionally related or designated for people like myself who came over as during the transatlantic slave trade. With you, your unique perspective, you said, hey, you know what? I'm first generation African-American. I'm 15th generation African-American. And you expound on your decision and perspective in identifying as African-American. Like, what do you see as the difference between us both being African-American? Yeah. If any at all. There definitely is some differences. If I look at it and we, we've had some conversations about, in my case, being born and raised in America, but knowing you know, very much so this is the village that my grandparents and great-grandparents came from and those stories, which are missing in other people's lives. I can't imagine being in those shoes and having to deal with that perspective, right? At the same time, if you go back far enough, we're from the same continent, right? And we share some of the same experiences, some of the same challenges in terms of being Black in the U.S. Throughout my life, I've found instances where it was like, okay, where do I sit? I don't feel like I sit fully on one side or the other, right? If I compare myself to African-Americans, you know, some of my closest friends are African-Americans. And for me, what the struggle was, was really identifying with being an American, right? I saw myself as someone who relates much more to an African-American than an American, right? So definitely saw the bonds and the ties there, but definitely also saw the tensions between our communities. And that's been a common place throughout life. Even in business school, there was a divide within our communities. I think it's something that a lot of people are being intentional about and trying to bridge because it's important that we come together as Black people and work together and strive to create wealth in our communities. Now, on the other side of the perspective, being back on the continent, or even now when I go back to Eritrea, not having being raised there, not being fluent in the language, there's also that divide there where it's like, okay, now you're Eritrean American, whereas I'm spending my life on this side of the world and trying to identify more with those roots, right? So it's a struggle where, you know, I feel like I'm somewhat between two different communities, accepted by both, but not fully in there. I hope that gives perspective. It definitely gives perspective. The reason why I'm asking you these questions is because you and I have had some really in-depth combos, right, about this. And I think that we could have this dialogue responsibly. I'm in a way that sheds more light, right? Because I think for those who have went over prior, you know, like generations and generations ago, it's very interesting when you have those who have just come and it's like, oh, we're so different. In reality, at least to me, a lot of our cultures and traditions are similar. They just look different because of the amount of time away from the homeland, right? But also, you know, I think about what happens to that first generation Eritrean in five generations. How much of the culture is still intact versus Oki becoming Americanized or African-Americanized? And so, like you said, you know, this is about bringing us together and bringing abundance to our communities because at the end of the day, whether it's now or it's in five generations, all going to still be fighting the same fight. And so I think that there's strength in numbers. So I appreciate you shedding light on that aspect and talking and being vulnerable about your identity and where you lie in within that. So thank you, bro. And so something I think about a lot, even if I look at my kids' generation, especially if I marry outside the culture, already not being fluent in the language, already being so far away from the country, the one generation in, are those kids going to relate at all? So leave alone five generations. It's something that's very important and something, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and brainstorming about how do we retain elements of the culture while celebrating how diverse and beautiful that this world is. Love that. Sticking to identity. Identity often comes to us when we're young and we identify and fall in line with things that matter to us or that we take a liking to. For you, you developed a love for the stock market early on and you even won a stock competition, which to my knowledge actually helped you to want to be on Wall Street. What competition was it? How old were you? How did this come about? I was in seventh grade. So I was about 11 or 12 years old and there was this stock market club available for students who wanted to participate in it. I thought it was something that was interesting and decided to give it a shot. This was in 1998. So you can imagine early days of the internet, you know, I'm showing my age a bit 
did here, but we would fill in these bubble sheets that we used to do in school to actually purchase the stocks. And we would mail it in and it would take a day or two, but then you'd get your order. So the game was basically, you start with $100,000 fictional money and you have 10 weeks to grow it. You're competing against people across New York State and the prize was to go down to Wall Street, get a tour of Wall Street for the winner of the Mark stock market game. So I really dove into it, really unlocked a new level of focus and embraced, you know, stock market and equity research and all that stuff. And, you know, really looked at what are disruptive companies in the space. And at the time with the internet and then the early age internet companies, it was people disrupting stock trading, right? So I looked at the experience buying stocks on a bubble sheet and I was like, okay, there's new companies called E-Trade and Ameritrade who are doing this on the internet. That sounds like a beautiful business model. Let me allocate some money towards that. I've always been a big reader and I was like, okay, cool. Purchasing books online, a company called Amazon that was, you know, fairly new back then also allocated some money towards that. Long story short, at the end of 10 weeks, we tripled the money. Me and my teammate turned 100,000 into 300,000. I mean, I was begging my parents to listen to me and buy stocks, but they're like, you know, we can't listen to a 12 year old to buy stocks. But ultimately got that trip down to New York, got the tour of Wall Street, got to ring the bell. And I was like, I want to be back here. This feels like home. So I was like, you know, I'm going to find a way to work here. And one day I'm going to find a way to be able to IPO and ring that bell by actually listing one of the businesses that I create. I guess that leads me to the next question. You still went to school and studied engineering. So how does an engineer end up making it to Wall Street? I knew I wanted to go to Wall Street at the same time. I was like, I don't want to study finance. I think there's a separation between following your passion and actually studying what you do for a living, right? So for me, I was like, let me do something that gives me optionality and something that challenges me, right? So I thought engineering was that. So I decided to do engineering, try it out. Ultimately, when I was going into my senior year, I was like, okay, I want to be on Wall Street. So looked up all the banks on Wall Street since they didn't come and recruit at Rensselaer, being an engineering school. And there was one bank, Merrill Lynch at the time, actually had a black CEO. And it was the only you know, firm on Wall Street that had a black CEO. So I was like, you know what? That's the company I want to work at. So we went after that job, applied for it, approached that interview process with a level of focus and determination, came down for an interview, a final round of interview in New York, and ultimately got the job. When I walked into that interview, having studied engineering, I had never studied a single finance class. So I remember part of the interview was a finance interview where they spent half an hour grilling me on finance. And I don't think I got a single question right. They were asking me what a derivative was and all these questions. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, it was a good effort, but maybe I'm not gonna get this job. There was a group teamwork session where, you know, I'm surrounded by finance majors and they gave us a plastic bag with newspapers and tape. And they asked us to build a bridge that can hold a book that weighed about five pounds without talking. So it's really testing your ability to work on a team and be able to use nonverbal communication to interact with others. And it was a bunch of finance majors and one engineering major. So obviously I crushed it, built a beautiful bridge. And I knew walking out of that group session that I was going to have a job offer. So yeah, that's how I broke into Wall Street. Well, I love that story. And you're talking about essentially using the skills that you have in order to make lemonade out of lemons, because you were in a situation where you had kind of not did your best in the other part of the interview. When I think of you, our conversations, bro, I always think about your tenacity and your dedication to your dreams. There's one particular story that's at the top of my mind right now, and that's what you did in order to attend your grad school interview. Can you please share with the Create Your Life family how that was? Because you did excel in Hong Kong and in New York as you were working at Merrill Lynch, but you did something extraordinary in order to make sure that you got this grad school attendance that you made in this grad school. So please share with us, man, please. 2008 started on Wall Street, Merrill Lynch. On the brink of bankruptcy, we got bought by Bank of America. So that was a whole chaotic process and learned a lot through that experience. It was in New York for the first two years and I got the opportunity to transfer internally to Hong Kong. Moved to Hong Kong, I was just about to turn 24. Living in Hong Kong, you know, got promoted and life is good. Why would you leave this? You're doing your passion and I'm working in the stock markets and enjoying where I'm living and in life. But at the same time, I wanted to push myself to the next level. And for me, that was now going back and studying finance and doing that through an MBA and getting other skills to become a better leader. So applied to a bunch of business schools. They usually come and do some interviews in international sites, but it's very limited slots. So I remember I got the email to interview with Wharton and by the time I clicked on it and signed in, there's no interview slots left. You know, email the guy from admissions and he was like, you know, you can do a Skype interview, but we highly recommend that you do the interview in person, right? You need to do it within the next two weeks. So I'm sitting there, I think it was November. So it's close to the end of the year. I'm almost out of vacation days. I had two vacation days left and I'm like, okay, how am I going to get to the US and do this interview? Because I don't want to blow this opportunity. I really want to go to Wharton. So left the office on Friday in Hong Kong, took a flight across the world to New York, landed Saturday night, spent the weekend there, went to Philly on Monday morning for the interview so that I could get back to New York, jump on a flight, get back to Hong Kong Tuesday night and get back 
back in the office Wednesday. So went to that interview and first question was like, okay, you're based in Hong Kong. What are you doing here? And, you know, I just told them that, you know, really want to get into this program and flew out just for this interview. And I'm flying back later today. Interview went well, flew back, was an office Wednesday. And, you know, people were like, oh, how was the long weekend? I was like, you know, it was good. You know, I didn't want to tell them I was interviewing for business school and jeopardized my job. It was well worth the investment and the long flight. How was the gentleman's reaction when you said, I really want to go to this school? I flew in for this interview. Well, how did he react to that? It was complete shock. It's not something that you expect to hear. It was a Ghanaian guy, I remember, and he was sitting there. He's like, okay, tell me how you as African-American, how did you end up in Hong Kong, first of all? And then flew in for this interview. That shows a level of commitment. And I think we talk a lot about Kobe Bryant and Mamba mentality. I think that's kind of been one of the drivers in terms of my push and my focus. And when I saw that challenge, it was like, okay, cool. If I do the video interview, it's going to hurt my odds of getting in, or I can pay money, get on a plane, get there, figure out how to get it done to chase how there's something I really want. So yeah, you know, I just let him know that, you know, this is where I want to be. This is the best school for me and I'm committed. Love that. Commitment. Y'all hear that, Create Your Life fam? Commitment. So how does your MBA help? And, you know, how did it align with your goals of entrepreneurship, being Africa first, impact and purpose? When you look at those three things that you just mentioned, I think this is cool. Really was a good opportunity for me to really focus and find out from a professional standpoint, what is it that actually matters to me and will continue to drive me for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And, you know, I think the beauty about programs like Warren and other top MBA programs is that you have such a diverse set of classmates, you know, literally from across the world have worked at pretty much every industry or every company you can think of that you can speak to about their experiences because we're all going through this two-year journey of kind of figuring out ourselves and what we want to get. So it was really two years to really focus on that, you know, try and test out different things. I did an internship in the U.S. with ExxonMobil. That really opened up my eyes to saying, you know what, I don't want to be in the U.S. because I had such a great experience living in Hong Kong and kind of starting to see the world and really jumping into traveling. When I thought about it and I sat back and I looked, I was like, you know what, there's something that is telling me to come to the continent. Went back for my second year and I just focused on trying to find opportunities in Africa and eventually it worked out and I found my way out here. And after grad school, you went to work at African Leadership University, ALU, Mauritius, as the chief strategy officer. Tell us about your experience, man, and you know how that actually led you or shaped you to found Aspira. When I was at Wharton, there's a conference that they do every year called the Wharton Africa Business Forum. So I went to it my first year and I remember meeting all these professionals with backgrounds like me and great degrees and living on the continent and killing it and then doing great work and building businesses. And it really gave me confidence that I could also do that, right? So when I was looking for opportunities on the continent, I was like, okay, what do I want to get? I'm like, I don't want to be in corporate, right? I've tried working in a bank for four years and dealing with hierarchy and corporate politics. And it's not just me. So I was like, I want to shift over to the startup space. I want to shift over to Africa. And, you know, this was 2014. So there wasn't a lot of VC money flowing to the continent. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity. So I was, you know, trying to think, okay, where can I work? And I remember one of the keynotes from that conference was Fred Swanick, the founder of African Leadership University. And he gave a powerful speech about African Leadership Academy and how they fund students to go there and their mission of getting them to come back to the continent after a few years and trying to keep the talent on the continent, right? And avoid the brain drain that has cursed so many countries in developing markets, right? If you look at some of the countries that have been doing well in the past decade in emerging markets, you know, China and India, a big part of that was talent coming back to the continent. That whole message really resonated with me and connected to Fred again through one of my classmates. And he was hiring for this role to help him start this university. I think the combination of being able to work with a brilliant entrepreneur such as himself, the mission of the organization, being on the continent and getting to work side by side and learn on the fly with him, it checked all those three boxes that you mentioned earlier. The day after I graduated, flew out there and, you know, it was a magical three years, long hours and creating a lot of impact. And the company's still doing great today. And it's a testament to, you know, the team that we had and the effort that we put into, we all put our all into it and the results speak for themselves. So how did your experience at ALU shape you? Found Aspira and what was Aspira? Through that experience, one thing I realized was I want to be in East Africa, right? East Africa is home. There's a level of energy here. And I loved Kenya from first time I visited in 2014. And on the other side, it was like, you know what? I've learned a lot through this experience at ALU. I want to apply it forward myself and create something of my own, you know, manage a PNL manage a team and take something from idea to realities. If you look at the fintech space, I would say in Africa, there's a massive amount of opportunities, right? Banks 
banks are underserving customers. There's not a lot of data out there. Cost of access to credit is super expensive and technology helps to bridge a lot of those gaps and solve some of those issues. So the whole concept between Aspira and BNPL is helping to allow consumers to access goods affordably and pay for it over time, right? So these are things like phones, furniture, household appliances, any physical good that you can think of. So the idea behind Aspira was, okay, Kenya is a market with a reasonable size, middle class, huge penetration in terms of access to digital financial services on the phones. Why is this model not here where it exists in different markets in Europe, US and other places, right? And if you look at the BNPL space and companies like Klarna, Affirm, who've done this model, it's mostly tied to e-commerce retail. That's the reason why it's tough for those guys to look at a market like Kenya or markets across Africa, LATAM and say, I want to enter this market because most goods are purchased in person. And so what we had to do was build a blended model between digital and physical. So as a customer, yes, there's some customers who are going to go and purchase goods online, but the majority of them are going to purchase in person. So how do I look at the whole credit underwriting process, automate it as much as possible, use a huge team of sales agents, right? So we had 40, 50 sales agents in different malls built to different tech platforms to integrate with our retailers as well as customers and give customers the ability to purchase a good within an hour. This is a process that took banks about two weeks to do on average, and we were able to reduce it down to an hour. Our consumer research showed that the biggest frustration for customers was speed to access to credit. And they were willing to pay more in terms of higher interest rate if you were able to solve this problem and help them access these goods quickly. We were able to figure that out between 2017 and 2018 and then scale up the business, grew it to about 100 employees by 2020. The business is still running today and flourishing. Mm, love that. But since being a spirit, you've actually took some time to get into your creative side and you transitioned away from a spirit and then started a company called Wine Life. Can you tell us a bit about Wine Life, what it was? I mean, I attended, but for the Create Your Life family globally, what was Wine Life? How was it? What inspired you to do it? Give us the game. 2020, COVID hits, chaos across the world. Businesses such as mine with Aspira is like, okay, cool. How do we stay afloat, right? How do we minimize our risk? Ultimately, our initial vision was going to four or five markets and scale this business across Africa. But the focus and strategy shifted now to, you know, let's streamline costs and drive up profits in the business in Kenya. That wasn't aligned with my vision. And anytime that any work that I do isn't aligned with my personal vision, I've stepped away from the business. The opportunity with Wine Life came about, you know, I was sitting at home during COVID and was missing interaction with people and community and trying to create a space where on one side, people can come together in safe spaces and outdoor environments and get comfortable interacting with people after lockdowns, but to really bring about a culture of wine in Kenya. So just really curating these experiences around wine tastings and wine education and really building wine consumption in Kenya. So started the first location in Nairobi, end of 2020. And that was a great experience. So I approached similar to how I approach my startups, right? So agile methodology, trying to improve the customer experience on a weekly basis. So started with a wine tasting for five friends. By the end of month two, we had 250 people coming to our wine events, working on a limited budget and investing in the business slowly, buying music equipment, hiring staff, adding food slowly and slowly and getting to the point where we felt that this was a product that we can now say is stable and we can make it something that is open seven days a week and you know hire full-time staff to run the operations. From there, the entrepreneur in me was like, okay, this is not enough. Let me open a second location. So growing from basically five people to 250 to a full staff, give us two jewels that you feel like were pivotal in you being able to grow this brand, um, which was completely different than what you were doing in finance prior. Drop some game on us, man. If I look at most businesses, a lot of it's the same, right? You look at marketing, you're trying to reach a certain customer base. So you identify that customer base and you go after them, right? One thing that we did that was unique was customer acquisition costs. So if you look at a lot of bars and restaurants, they'll pay people to be there, right? Whether it's a DJ, an influencer, whatever it might be. But as a customer who's coming to attend there, that's not why you're coming. You're coming for the experience, right? So I'd rather use my customer acquisition costs and drive that to the customer. So what we actually did for those first two months was do free wine tastings. So when I talk about 250 people coming, we gave out a free wine tasting, right? So we're giving out about $300 in wine. That's my customer acquisition costs, which is probably the same cost as a good DJ who can pull a crowd in Nairobi. But once those customers are there, we're generating a couple thousand in revenue. So it's well worth investment. And now it's, you know, how do I get that customer to come back on a regular 
basis? And then also, how do I listen to that customer and continuously iterate on my experience to deliver a better experience for them, right? So I think a lot of customers saw the growth from day one to, you know, four months into six months into eight months. Really a great community, very diverse in terms of diplomats, expats, Kenyans. So bringing together a diverse community, making them be comfortable with being in a space like that after being stuck at home for so long, having great product. One thing that we stayed strong about was the quality of the product that we sold, right? And so we didn't want to tarnish that experience. The name of the business is Wine Life. So we just focused on selling wine, right? A lot of people ask for spirits, but it was like, you know what? If you want spirits, go somewhere else. So leaving some money on the table to create this community and be very intentional about this community that you want to serve and this product value proposition that you want to serve. Okay. No. So what I'm hearing from you is number one, know your customer. And then number two is focus by staying in your lane and continuing to offer the product that you know works for the type of customer that you have. That's what I'm taking away. Those are two jewels that I'm getting from everything that you just said. Am I on point or what you thinking? I would just add one phrase that I love is Kaizen, continuous improvement, right? So just knowing that even if everyone's happier, just continue to raise that bar for your customers and they'll be your brand ambassadors and you'll see a ton of organic growth. Love that. And spell Kaizen. K-I-Z-E-N. Okay, so one of the things that I like about you, Yoel, is that taking a unique path, man, you work in finance, then you did grad school, you worked in education, back to finance, then wine life, where you were embracing your creative side, and now you are back to finance. How did wine life inspire you to start your most recent company, Sava? And why did you start Sava? What is Sava? Like, tell us about this life that you live in. You know, I think one thing that resonated throughout my career, so going back, I started my career working at a bank and I saw how inefficient and bureaucratic it was and how ultimately we weren't serving our customers as well as we should have, right? So I've always kind of had this rebel against the bank's mentality. And that's what drove me into fintech to start. But my experiences between, you know, Aspira, Wine Live and ALU showed me often I'm managing the finances of the business in place of a CFO or whatnot. It took away a large amount of my time from the business to just stay on top of the cash flow of the operations. And it was very manual. Aspira, I had multiple managers. I had my marketing team and we had one corporate card across the company. So we're sharing the corporate card across different employees. At the end of the month, we're sitting there and we're trying to go through all the expenses and there's receipts that are missing. I'm trying to figure out which person had the card on this day or that day. I'm exporting all my transactions from my bank statement, from my M-Pesa. I'm going through and commenting on them and sending that to my accountant, waiting for a couple of weeks for them to get back and tell me what happened last month from a cash flow perspective. Now, if you look at smaller and medium businesses where cash flow is so crucial and you might have you know 14 to 30 days cash on hand, if there's some type of situation where there's a shock to your financials, it's not enough time for you to go and try to get a loan from a bank or your finances might not be organized enough where you can actually go and get approved from a loan from a bank. So that's what drives a lot of SMEs and businesses to take higher interest loans from microfinance companies, right? So saw that as a massive opportunity. A lot of the retailers that we worked with at Aspira also were like, you know, how come you can't finance, give us access to credit to help open up a new branch or import additional goods. So really saw a lot of opportunity, hearing a lot of problems from SMEs in Kenya and looked around and saw more people focused on the consumer side of fintech. So took some time and then looked into the fintech space globally and really loved the spend management model, which has been popularized by companies like Brex and Ramp in the US and using it as a hook to ultimately become a bank for businesses. This was about a year and a half ago, came up with idea, built a prototype with two close friends, started testing it with business owners in our networks, as well as investors in Kenya, went down to South Africa on a whim, spent a few weeks down there and saw that there was even a bigger market and opportunity down there. So decided to come back to Kenya and shift my focus fully to building what has become Sava. So that's what I've been up to for the last year and a half. Love that. So you're on your second financial business. How did you build your appetite for resilience and startup life? Where did you get that muscle from? People always say, you know, don't complain, like go out there and try to solve problems rather than complaining. So I've always kind of had that mentality as well. I saw this as a problem that I faced in every business that I started. And I was like, you know what, rather than sit here and complaining about it or how manual it is, I don't see anyone building this solution. Let me go out there and build a team around this to solve a problem that affects a ton of people on a daily basis. I think one thing that I enjoy about entrepreneurship is when you get to a certain stage of the business and your product is out there and you can see people interacting with your product, that's the ultimate high. I don't think there's anything in the world that feels better than that, right? So whether it's Aspira and just going around to different malls and just observing and seeing how clients interact with our sales agents and their experience purchasing the product, or even when I was walking into Wine Life and seeing 200 customers at my place and I might know two people out of those 200. It's just a testament to the quality of the product and the thinking that went behind 
behind creating it? As an entrepreneur, as someone who's leading a team in multiple markets, how do you yourself stay rejuvenated and focused as a leader? Because you're exerting so much energy to other things. How do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself? That's definitely been a huge focus of mine over the past year, especially, you know, because I think if I look back when I was leaving Aspira, I was burned out. I was really down, you know, four years at Aspira, three years at ALU, just, you know, grinding hundred hour weeks and not really investing in that. So I took a step back and said, you know what, there's things that I need to work on, right? So spending time and getting to know yourself, being open to feedback from others and realizing, hey, none of us are perfect. We're all working on ourselves. There's a few things that I've implemented that have been quite helpful. I think one, every morning when I wake up, you know, I start by doing breath work and meditation for half an hour. So it's really grounding myself, collecting my thoughts and journaling about it before I even connect to email, phone and the chaos that is life and entrepreneurship. I would say therapy has been great. I started doing that end of last year and really starting to unpack some of the experiences in life and how that's impacted me and it created stories and narratives in my head that I need to unwind, right? So that's been great. And then I would say third was giving up alcohol. That was a very transformative experience. You were there when I took my last drink in December of last year and really reaping the benefits of that from an energy perspective, from a health perspective. I love that too. Yeah. And I was there in December 22. I ran into you at what was an everyday people party in Cape Town and to see you, you gave it up. Not that you weren't addicted to it or anything like that, but you gave it up and just said, hey man, I'm starting a new path. So again, man, talking about your dedication, your commitment to becoming a better person, you know, kudos to you. My hat off to you for continuing to evolve, bro. It's been great witnessing your journey. We'll get more into that also. Wow, Create Your Life family. I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. I guess my next question for you is, what role has mentorship played for you in your success as an entrepreneur and as a man overall? I think I've been blessed to interact with some great people throughout my career. From day one, when I was at Merrill, I remember one of my MDs took me under his wing. It was a tumultuous time and, you know, 30% of the company got let go one day and it was a crazy experience, but he helped me kind of navigate that and figure out how to work my way through that organization, right? So from there to my time on the continent with Fred and many other other people just helping to navigate this path and take my time to figure things out in this journey. On the other side of the table, you know, paying it forward now and mentoring a lot of people and sharing my experiences and learnings with others. You know, I have about 10 mentees that I speak with on a monthly basis. A lot of them are former students of mine from ALU, and it's great to see their growth. And some of them are starting businesses, going to grad school now. It's great to learn from them as well, right? You just hear stories about people working in different industries, different perspectives on issues, different experiences of life. Mentorship is key. And, you know, I would say definitely focus not just on taking it in, but, you know, sharing it forward with your communities. Speaking of in the spirit of giving back, paying it forward, what are three tips that you would give to other startup founders in the African fintech space? One is the talk to your customer from day one and every day. That's the number one key to the business, right? At the end of the day, you're selling a service, someone's paying for it. You need to serve them. Two, if I look at the regulatory environment, regulators, I feel like fintech is a new space globally, right? And regulators are still getting their heads around it. Often they're viewed as a regulator means bad guy. It's going to slow me down, prevent me from innovating. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to protect the system and protect customers and their interests. So come to the table, work with them, show the value of the solution that you're bringing and do things the right way from that perspective. And thirdly, you know, the points of having the right stakeholders and investors around you, right? So take time and really find people who believe in your vision that you enjoy working with. At the end of the day, you don't want to be three, four years into a journey starting a new business and realizing that you and your investors can't communicate or can't talk and then don't see eye to eye because entrepreneurship is a lot of work and you're putting in a lot of hours and time and you want to make sure that you have the right people behind you that are backing you. Love that. Thank you for those jewels, man. As you've been on this path and you've done multiple companies, everything isn't always roses, right? And one of the things that I oftentimes try to ask people is because, you know, like you hear your well, you hear your pedigree, your degrees and all of these things, the success that you've had. But, you know, oftentimes there's negative feedback that takes place. And so as you were rising or even 
maybe even today, how did you deal with the negative feedback? And was there ever any point that you were like, hey, you know what? I might quit or I'm going to give up. And if there was a moment that you had like that, how did you push past it? A lot of founders talk about near-death experiences, right? With your companies when, you know, you're running out of cash or there's some issue that you can't figure out. It comes up a lot. I think at the end of the day, you just have to remember that it's a long-term game, right? I think beyond work challenges, one thing that I've always thought about was, okay, cool. I've put nine years into living and working on the continent and dealing with the challenges that can arise living here and sacrificing a lot, right? In terms of being separated from family and environment they grew up around, sacrificing things financially. At the end of the day, you just have to have a clear vision of what your purpose is. Keep that top of mind always. Every day, think about it. Use that to ground you and keep pushing, right? You know, I think, you know, last few years, you've kind of seen the sentiment and the amount of capital that has been flowing into the continent. And I think that's going to continue. And I think there's nowhere else in the world that I would want to be than Africa, right? A lot of people saying, why don't you move back to the US or why don't you do this? Initially, I thought of it as they're trying to pressure me into doing this. But in hindsight, I think it's actually curiosity to get a better understanding of this is not a normal path or journey for someone. Tell me, like, why are you approaching it this way, right? I found that those conversations have been helpful for a lot of people who have been debating things such as moving to a new city or thinking about attending grad school or starting a business and then they don't have that courage. It's like, okay, Noel has done all that and he's living in Africa doing it. I don't have an excuse to not follow my purpose and my dreams. So don't necessarily view everything as a negative feedback. It might just be probing to get a better sense of why you're choosing to make that decision or follow that path. Yeah, one of my mentors, Raphael X. Moffat, he always says, correction is direction, feedback is love. If somebody is taking the time to give you feedback and be honest with you, listen, because it might be some jewels in there that could really help you. And speaking of jewels and becoming your best, what has been the biggest personal challenge that you have needed to overcome in order to be who you are today? If I look at my career, you talked about my path. It seems like, okay, cool. Everything has just been kind of building and success after success. But I think really in 2020 was the first time I started experiences challenges and hardship and trying to figure out how to work through that. And I think through that experience, it helped me realize that there were some things that I needed to work on that contributed to those challenges arising. Having the courage to go and say, you know what, let me go and seek feedback. Let me go and seek executive coaching programs and therapy and read and ask people for recommendations and honest feedback. It's tough, right? Someone who has had a lot of success, you think, okay, cool. What help does someone like that need? Do they figure it out and they figure out this journey of life? But self-work is a continuous process. It's a lifelong journey. Once you start embracing it, you start to see things change around you. So take that step, reach out to people close to you, get that feedback, go to therapy, focus on your mental health, especially as a founder or someone who's living a hectic professional life. It's important to have that basis because if you don't have that foundation, it might be now, a year from now, it might be 10 years from now, but it'll come crashing down. Gotcha. And so what would you call that biggest personal challenge that you needed to overcome? You had to give it a name or an adjective. What would you call it? As an adjective, but like sitting with yourself. So is that awareness or what would you say? I mean, how would you describe it? Because you gave us a picture. And so I think that those who are listening, they might want to say, hey, you know what? Yoel felt like he needed to go and do X in order to become who he is today because I'm trying to be like Yoel or, you know, maybe our listeners may have that same type of challenge, trying to bottle it up a little bit more simply so that they can then activate and act on their advice from Yoel. That's why I'm asking. Especially as an entrepreneur, you're always thinking into the future. So I think the key thing to unlock all that is being present. Being present, sitting there and looking at the realities of the situation you're in at the current moment and working towards getting better and improving that situation. So if you're not present, it's tough to actually jump into that work that takes you to where you want to be. So I got three things from that. I got be present, be honest with yourself and seek feedback. Am I hitting those three on the head as far as what it took for you to become the personal challenges you need to overcome to become who you are today? I would add one more thing to that. Add, brother, please. There's a level of consistency day in, day out. And one thing that we've been doing on a personal note (laughs) is our weekly accountability groups. Don't tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them. Okay. We will get to that, we will get to that. (laughs) But that's also been a secret key to unlock some of the recent success. 
successes. No, most definitely. Who's been your biggest champion on your path to becoming who you are today? My biggest champion has been my dad, I would say, right? He's never questioned the path that I've been on. I think a lot of people have questioned it and said, you know, why are you taking all this risk and doing all these things? But he's always been like, I know you're on a journey and you have a mission. I don't know what it is, but I'm there for you and I always have your back. So very thankful to have him and his support. I love support and giving back is like a big theme for you and a big thing for you as well, Yoel. In addition to being the CEO of Salva, you are also an investor in many different businesses. And a couple of days ago, we were talking about investing and you actually shared a text message with me about some of the lessons that you learned investing in other companies. Can you please elaborate or give some of that knowledge to the Create Your Life family about what you have learned? And the reason why I'm bringing that up specifically is I love the way that you put it together. I said, you know, teach me the way, oh, great one. And you were like, these are the things that I learned. And it wasn't necessarily about, oh, this is what is doing well and this, that, and the other. It was about the lessons that you learned from investing and that you learned from the founders and the way in which those businesses are ran. So if you could, man, please give us some of that perspective. My investment into companies hasn't had the return that my stock investments has, but at least financially, but in terms of knowledge and learning, it's been very pivotal. I think on one side, when you're investing in a business as a founder and you're investing in another founder's business, you can relate to a lot of the issues and struggles that they have in terms of HR or cash flow or whatever it might be. Also, you get a perspective in terms of the industries that they're focused on building and what customers are communicating to them. You know, for example, I've invested in one business that's in the fashion space. I've invested in a business in the fintech space. I've started a business in the wine space. I've also invested in a business in the furniture space. All these experiences, these all Kenyan companies, gives me a broader perspective in terms of the broader economy and what's going on and some of the real issues that people are facing on a daily basis. And you need to understand that to be able to build solutions for them, right? So that's why I'm a big proponent of if you're building a business or solution for a market, you need to be in that market. If I look at myself, I'm in between Kenya and South Africa. Those are two main markets, but I don't see how I could run this business living in San Francisco, right? Yeah, sure, there's access to a lot of capital there, but why do I need to be there to access it, right? I need to be close to my customers and really understand their challenges. And if I look at some of these companies I've invested in, every founder has their strengths, right? I look at one thing that I'm not great at is marketing. I've seen a common theme of a lot of these companies having people who are great at marketing and really doing initiatives to help promote their brands and ultimately drive sales. I've learned a lot from these founders, same as they've learned a lot and asked me for a lot of advice in terms of other elements of their business. I look at these investments as they're all products and people that I believe in. That's all you need to have conviction to make an investment in someone. If you have those two things, a community can come together and help support on those other areas and drive this business to success. I hope you don't mind, man, but actually I want to quote you. I'll leave out the businesses that you're invested in for the sake of your privacy, but I love the explanation that you gave, but I just love the way you put it. I text you and I said, bro, you've got your hand in everything from an investment standpoint. Teach me the way, sensei. Your response was, one of the companies is your only non-stock investment doing well. You said, I got to write off the rest. I find investing in industries that are very different. Yours helps you see things more clearly for your own work. And you said, looking at ways founders are approaching solving problems and also what is going on in different spaces. And then you said, my investment in Wine Life, I'll mention that company because it's your company, for example, taught me a lot about the Kenyan economy and current affairs. So I was not surprised at all when certain things happened in the economy because that's what people wanted. And I knew that because I could check the pulse of the people by being around them. You said my investment in X company taught me about the process to go through a complete pivot in business model focused on a revenue generating source that was once an ancillary product and now is the core business. Then you said my investment in X company taught me about the gap in terms of understanding basic cash flow management and customer service and how quickly that can kill a business. You said those things earlier, yeah, but yeah. for you to just send that in the text was so concise and to me was just testament to how your mind works when it comes to investment and how it works in terms of processing. And I think that it's important for the Create Your Life fam to really understand, you know, that when you're making certain moves, it's not always about the financial return or what you get right there because the knowledge that you gain and the perspective that you gain may be way more valuable. So thank you for dropping that on me personally. And also thank you for allowing me to share that with the Create Your Life fam and ultimately with Global, so the world. Sometimes I find it easier to write down my thoughts than like verbalize them. But those are three great examples of things that I've learned or seen and great tips for other people globally. Yeah. Okay, cool. So now we can get into what you were about to talk about, man. And that is since I saw you in December, man, we linked up, we had met 
met a long time ago. I actually met you at Wine Life in 2021. We would just see each other out randomly. And, you know, in 2022, in December, we definitely got the opportunity to hang out, spend some time together, work out together and really have some really deep conversations, man. You've been on this really, really serious journey of self-improvement very heavily in 2023. And I've been able to witness it, be a part of it, cheer you on in the process. Can you shed some light with the Create Your Life fam? How have you been able to do this? What's working for you? What's not working? And how it manifests for you daily? It's been a great journey. You know, I think for me, I touched upon it earlier, right? When you sit with yourself and then kind of realize some of your flaws and then are open to feedback, it opens up a whole can of worms. That led to me creating a list of 20 different things that I need to work on. Luckily, I have a lot of great people around me who've spent time going through similar journeys and have helped guide me through the process. So I moved to Cape Town about a year ago and that's when I started sitting with myself. But I think a lot of the self-work went into overdrive around December. There was one night where we were hanging out and it was a Friday night, I believe, and slept in on Saturday, woke up around like noon when I'm you know, finally out of bed and ended up wasting the whole weekend. And I was like, you know what? I cannot do all the things that I want in life if I'm not intentional about how I spend my time, right? That's what drove me to say, you know what? If I cut out alcohol, I get all this time back. I can get more into reading. I can get more into hiking, right? So I've been intentional about scheduling things early morning, 7 a.m. workouts, hikes, tea times on the golf course, just to avoid that distraction of being out late or being unfocused. That was one element of the journey. I think a second was going to therapy and really working with a professional and unpacking a lot of these experiences. That's where it kind of clicked. Okay, that trip to Eritrea in 91 influenced me today or my experiences growing up as a black person in the U.S. and how that helped push me away from the U.S. or identifying as being American, right? So it helped me start thinking about these things and just unpacking more and more things that need to work on. I think when you're on a journey like this, it's important to have people around you that are on a similar journey, right? And a lot of people around you are probably trying to improve themselves or better themselves, right? And coming out of that trip to Cape Town, we started our weekly accountability groups where we focused on seven elements of life. So career, well-being, travel, community, finance. Yeah. So beyond professional, right? If I look at all elements of life, you know, what are different things that you need to work on? Setting quarterly targets, having people to help push you, hold your accountability. We check in on a weekly basis for an hour. Now it's expanded to five of us from just me and Kevin initially and adding a few more guys this quarter. So really excited to see the level of commitment and focus and change that we've seen across all of us and how that will continue to grow and how we continue to support our communities. So yeah, so that's been great. Done a few executive coaching programs as well, just focused on, I talked about being present earlier, being mindful and just continuously building, continuously applying your learnings, having accountability partners to help keep you on track. It really changes how you see and interact with the world as a result of making a few of these small changes. Kudos to you, man. Actually, you know what? You didn't call it out, but I'm going to call it out. Bro, your diet is different. Alcohol intake is obsolete. Talk to us a little bit about this fitness journey that you've been on, man, and some of the results that you've gotten. When I cut out alcohol, I started seeing the benefits of that. I started saying, okay, cool. What is it that I'm putting in my body or not putting in my body anymore? So earlier this year, started doing keto diet, also cut out sugar from my diet. Yeah, have some family history of diabetes. So that was part of cutting out sugar and being intentional about that. A gut health test, there's a company called Viome where you can do blood, stool, saliva sample and analyze hundreds of different foods and say, okay, these are foods that you should avoid or keep on eating, taking supplements. So do blood work, figure out what supplements you're missing from your diet. Supplements are meant to supplement your life lifestyle, so not being dependent on them. So like focus on putting the right things in your body and where you can't having supplements to supplement that. Lost about 20 pounds this year. So a couple belt buckles, feeling great, good regular sleep schedule. So getting to bed at like 11 most nights, doing that breath work and meditation in the morning, you'll feel the effects. And once you feel the effects, you're leaving away all those toxic things in the past and you want to feel even more better. It's this Kaizen principle, continuous improvement, even in this aspect of life. It's been a great experience and looking forward to continuing it. Love it, bro. I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. And everybody in the group is working out at least four times a week. Some of us getting up to like eight times a week. So we doing work over here, y'all. So Yoel, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? Is there a hobby or a career that you've always wanted to pursue that you would pursue? It's a good question. You know, I think there's still some mark I want to leave on the fintech space. 
I think that experience with wildlife and really embracing my creative side really got me thinking about, okay, cool. What else is there that I can do, right? So there's a couple ideas that I have back of mind for the future that I'm still kind of ideating on and figuring out. I think there's something about the researching and having a worldview on something and it's tied to capital and the amount of capital that you create shows how right you were on that theory, right? So for those of you in the finance world, there's something called efficient market theory, which I don't believe in because it says basically the price of an asset is priced in and that the current value today is the current value of that asset. And there's a lot of debate on that, but ultimately I think if you put the research in, if you understand an economy, there's hidden gems out there. So really thank you through, really love this investment journey that I've been on, trying to figure out what my interaction with it is in the future and then helping to pay forward in terms of you know supporting other founders. Hopefully some of the capital that I generate from this business continue to invest it and deploy it forward. So I would say those two things. So finding something for my creative energy and then trying to get more back into the investment space as well. The fintech space is heavily invested into in Africa. Where do you see the industry going in the next three to five years? There's been a lot of capital flowing into the continent in the last few years. I would say that it is difficult to build across multiple markets. You're talking about multiple jurisdictions. You're talking about regulatory challenges that are very different. You talk about payment rails that haven't been built. I think you'll see more and more consolidation and businesses that are, you know, well-run, well-funded, buying up smaller players in other markets and doing more of a pan-African play. It's not my expertise, but, you know, there's a lot of exciting work coming out of the crypto and Web3 space, given some of the challenges operating in some of these markets. You know, you look at a market like Nigeria, you know, where the currency is, I think, up to 950 Naira for $1. Even Kenya, shillings at 150 I came here a month ago, it was at 140 right? And the level of challenges that causes to people who are importing goods and can't raise their prices because spending power is already so low, it's just squeezing all elements of the economy, evening the playing field a bit more because there's a lot of great talent. If I look at Kenya, one thing I'm proud of with Aspira was, you know, we had 100 employees, 98 were Kenyan. There's a lot of great talent here that can operate at a global level. How do you give them more opportunities and access to be able to actually compete at the global level. I think there's a lot of opportunities in the fintech space that can help enable that. Love it. Last question of this segment. What is your commitment to building a brighter future for Africa? How are you inspiring others to follow their passions and make a positive impact in their nation? Yeah, just by being present. If I look at it, I don't need to be here. I don't have to be here. It's a lot easier if I'm not here, but I love being here. I love hearing more and more people coming back and, you know, returning to their continent, to their countries and building their countries. I pointed at a few examples, you know, China and India, that was instrumental to their success over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, you're starting to see that in Africa now. And, you know, hopefully many more of my brothers and sisters across the world will take the leap of faith and come back home. And there's a lot of great people here and we're waiting for you and we're excited to welcome you and let's make Africa great again. Well, I don't know if Africa ever stopped being great. People were telling false stories about it, but all good, all good. Well, Yoel, thank you so much for that part of the interview. Now we are about to jump into the next aspect of the interview, which is rapid fire questions you have to answer answer in 30 seconds or less, you are about to enter the dolphin tank. I have one question for you before we get started, though. Are you ready? All right, let's get to it. Okay, what was the last song that you listened to on your playlist? Why? Destroy and Rebuild by Nas. Nas, my favorite rapper, and, you know, it was just diving into the meaning of that title, being on this journey of rebuilding myself, so. How do you measure and make sure that you're growing each year? So one thing that I'm in the process of setting up is a personal board with five people that I'm close with where I'll set KPIs on a yearly basis, and they help me throughout the year, and at the end of the year, we get together and measure my performance. So it's almost like a normal board of a company. Personal board of directors. Yeah. Love it. I have one. What was holding you back from creating a life you've always wanted? Not fully trusting my intuition. So that's one of the things I'm working on is what are these obstacles that are preventing me from fully embracing my intuition and going after what else I want? Love that. Love that. Favorite quote or model that you live by? Kaizen, right? As I mentioned earlier, continuous improvement, really big fan of Six Sigma, continuous improvement, all the stuff that has come out of Japan, Toyota production system. So yeah, Kaizen. Top tech that you're using to make your life run smoothly. So I'm at this checklist on the MacBook. I switched to Apple recently and just have this checklist that's always open to my laptop and just working through that every day. Okay, cool. Favorite or most impactful book that you've read? It's tough to pick one. I would say Conversations with God. It's a book I read in the past year as I've been on this journey of figuring out spirituality and it's been quite impactful to me. Three jewels you would tell someone looking to create the life of their dreams. Stop making excuses. Go after it today and talk to your customers. What's next for you? Next for me is taking Salva to Wall Street and 
IPOing in a few years. Love it. And what's the best way for the Create Your Life family to stay in contact with you? I'm active on LinkedIn. Can be shout on email as well, yoel at Saba.Africa. Always happy to chat, share my experiences and meet new people globally. Can you spell Saba for us? S-A-V-A. Yeah. Thank you. So Yoel, congratulations. You have survived the dolphin tank. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now we have reached the third and final part of the interview, which is called the turnaround. You guys know what this means, what this is. This is the part of the interview where you get to ask me any three questions that you want, totally unscripted, and I have to answer. So I only have one request. Okay. Please be gentle. Please be gentle. Okay. <laughs> okay, three questions for Kevin Brown, Mr. Create Your Life. It's been a few years for you on the continent. It's been a lot of growth between now and your end. And what are you going to do to help create the life that you want? I'm going to continue to knock out the goals that we put together in our weekly meetings, in our goals group. I'm going to continue to do that, stay fit. And I'm always challenging myself to become better and to learn something new. I'm going to continue to keep setting up new goals and knocking them down. That's, you know, my real thing, but also continuing to look inward and be present with myself and focus on the things that matter to me and also continuing to just be open, honest, and vulnerable with myself and with others. Definitely making sure that I'm staying around people who love me and I have love for. So, you know, keep that positive circle of people that mean well to me and for me around. We haven't talked about it a lot on this podcast, but we talk a lot about it throughout the weeks and stuff, but maybe talk a bit more about what is mama mentality and what does it mean for you? So it's interesting that you say mama mentality. Like I love Kobe Bryant. I love his work ethic, right? Like I don't know Kobe Bryant. I love his work ethic and things like that. So mama mentality is actually not my mentality. My mentality is ambition mentality. Ambition is my word, word that means a lot to me. And so for me, it's always about feed your ambition. That's my thing is feed your ambition. You know, for me, I always come up with some crazy idea. Oh, I'm gonna move to Africa. What may be perceived as crazy. To me, it's not crazy, but it's like, oh, you know, I come up with something, make it up in my head, then I go out and I go to achieve it or I go do it. I laser focus in on making that happen. And so for me, the ambition mentality is about getting better and being better every day and also being open to being wrong so that you can continue to ultimately get better. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day and I was like, I think change is fun. And she was like, nobody thinks change is fun. And I was like, I actually think change is fun because it's an opportunity for you to get better and it's an opportunity for you to evolve and also essentially look at some of the aspects of you that you can improve on. After some more conversation about it, she was like, oh, I get it. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's fun as in, you know, what's going to happen on the other end of it, right? Like there is going to be times where, you know what I mean? It's challenging, it's demotivating, all of these things, but what's on the other side of it is beautiful. So embrace the challenge of having to evolve and to change. And I think the interesting part about it is, is that most people don't race the challenge happily of making the change and evolving. And I think I wish that a lot more people would because there's so much more that you could become. And to me, it really matters. A lot of it starts with just accountability first. Like, yo, you got to be honest with yourself. If you're not doing your best, you got to be like, I could do better. Or for me, like, I'll be honest with myself. Earlier this week, I wrote a press release and then my colleague looked at it and she was like, this is not the direction that and I was like, you know, after she asked me a few questions about the press release and stuff like that, I was like, you know what? Press release is some bullshit. I called myself out. You know what I mean? And that's the accountability part that I think is so important. And so when she gave me those questions, I took it as, you know, correction is direction, feedback is love. So I took it as love. And I was like, you know what? If somebody had given that to me, I would have thought this way about it. So I don't excuse myself. So what I did is I went and read a bunch more press releases and then I went and did additional research in order to improve the document. And boom, next time I write another one, it's going to be better. So to me, that ambition, man, I'm feeding that ambition and I'm feeding myself on how to become better and to optimize as a human. So mama mentality, much respect, but we ambition mentality over here, bro. Love it. Love <laughs> it. Love it. Love it. Last question. So, you know, I talked a lot about Kaizen. We have our accountability group. So I hope this might be something that you put in your goals for next quarter. But mm -hmm. what are three things that you can do next quarter to take, create your life, own life to the next level? Oh, love that. So number one is collaboration with a major media house. I think whether that be a radio house, a publication in those veins, you know what I mean? I think that we definitely need to collaborate up a lot. And, you know, shout out to Kofisi. We're recording at Kofisi, one of our studio partners. So very thankful to them for always showing love and providing the space for us to be able to have great conversations like this. I think another one that can be overlooked, I'm known for being consistent, but I don't take it lightly. So I would have to say being consistent on doing shows and having episodes. I would also say maybe thirdly is I want to get out and make sure that I'm getting recommendations from people who are our guests, our people who are following and are listening in order to bring on the next guests. 
others want to hear from. So I think that those are three things that I think will take us to another level. And I also want to say that one of the best things and the smartest things that we can do as Create Your Life is to make sure that we're listening to what our listeners want and that we're open to being wrong and adjusting where we can in order to make sure that we're creating the best product that is giving tangible steps for people to go out and create their best life and the life that they've always dreamed of, because that is essentially what it's all about. The reason why I think that Africa X is so important is because, you know, sometimes people might come up to me and be like, hey, you know what? How do I become a radio personality? I'm like, bro, I don't know how to become a radio personality in Kenya, but I know somebody who does or we can find somebody who does and then you should talk to them because, you know, that's domain expertise that I don't have. Like generally overall, I would be able to tell you, but I think that it's important for those who are on the ground here, hear from those who are on the ground and have the real experience in these markets, man. So Africa X, we are up next. We are now and we are the future. Sure. Awesome. Cool. I'll definitely do my part supporting you on the third one and everything else that you're focused on. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed this experience. Appreciate you, Yoel, man. Always a pleasure to chat. So Create Your Life family, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and especially on Afropods. And of course, share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to info at cyoseries.com. Create Your Life series is executive produced by myself, Kevin Y. Brown and produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. And this episode has been recorded at Kofisi Studios in Nairobi, Kenya. So until next time, create your life, feed your ambition. Peace. Create your life. <laughs> Create your life, Africa This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. And remember to use code CYLS. That's PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273.